0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome again. Glad that you are here with us. Uh, It is September, which means we've started our September prayer initiative. I encourage you, please check the website and go to a prayer meeting. Pick a night of the week uh, that you're free or that you have maybe less going on and go out and pray. We are in full force. We did ours at our house last night. I think we're actually going to move ours to Thursday nights because there's like five or six already meeting on Tuesdays and I don't think much going on on Thursdays. Uh so but just check the website go to ccohv.org click on prayer initiative find a place near you or where God would direct you to go and listen it's not too late to host if you still want to open up your home uh just get in touch with the church office we'll be doing this for the whole month of September uh we're already experiencing God doing amazing things he is moving he's answering our prayers it's powerful it's effective uh and I hope that you'll be involved in it and also again the baptism is this Sunday night um, come on out to that, even if you've been baptized, celebrate with the people that are. And listen, even if you maybe are like, ah, I'm gonna come and just check it out. I haven't been baptized yet, but I'll come. Listen, bring an extra pair of clothes. We're not gonna say, well, you didn't shine up ahead of time, you know. It's a profession of faith in Christ. It's a public declaration, it's a visual, outward expression of the inward transformation that Christ makes in our hearts. So uh, please be a part of that. That's this Sunday night. And uh, we are in a brand new series tonight. So you can open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers. As they make their way, they will drop a Bible off to you in your hand. I've got a couple of verses that I'm going to open with tonight that are not in 1 Samuel. Uh, they will go up on the screen. You may write them down. Um, just a verse or two, one in Ecclesiastes, one in Psalms. Uh, do you remember, I don't know if, if, um, if this is something that, was around when you were a kid, or if they still do it, if you're younger than I am, but I remember in gym class, when I was in um, maybe grammar school, we played this game called Red Light, Green Light, and it probably has many different names, you know, but there would be the, the person calling out on one side of the gymnasium, and the rest of the group would be on the other side, and the caller would shout, Green Light, and everybody would sprint towards the caller, and then he'd say, Red Light, and everybody had to stop, and if you twitched, blinked sneeze, breathed. If you did anything, they would call you out and you had to go back and start over and they would green light, red light, yellow light until someone actually touched the person and then they would get to be the new caller. You guys remember that game, red light, green light? You know, I think one of my biggest fears is that that's going to happen in real life. You know, that we're moving along, that things are happening and then all of a sudden there's just stop and we're just frozen right where we are. Now, you know, yes, there are times that that would be pleasant, you know, but my fear is that it would happen in a time that is unpleasant, you know, and I and I kind of say that as we're in day 166 of a 14-day slowdown, you know, <laughs> but but the truth of the matter is that that doesn't happen. Is that things keep moving, things keep changing. Things have to keep moving, and that's good news and bad news. It's good news if you come into a season that is unpleasant, and sometimes it's bad news if you're in a a place of life where you just say, I just wish everything could just stay just the way it is right now. Guess what? It's not going to. Things are going to change, and they have to change, because in this life, when things stand still, they start to stink, and that happens universally, you know, so things have to keep moving. And so we're starting a study tonight in 1 Samuel, and I've called the series Transitions because that's really what 1 Samuel represents, is a thing, you know, things are going to change. And that's the title of tonight's message, is things are going to change. And that's what I want you to understand tonight. It's the title, and it's my point, is that things are going to change. It's going to happen. Say it with me. Things are going to change. Change. So I'm going to read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 4 and then I'm going to turn to Psalm 119 for a verse. It says this, it says that one generation passes away and another generation comes but the earth abides forever. And of course the earth won't abide forever but poetically you get the idea of what Solomon is seeking to communicate there. Now Psalm 119 verse 90. Uh, the psalmist says this, he says, Thy faithfulness, speaking of God, is unto all generations. You have established the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. And so the Bible declares to us, and there are countless verses that say these same things, that one generation comes and then goes, and then another generation Comes and then goes, and it changes. Things change. God is the same. The earth abides, but generations come and generations go. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, as we uh, consider the world that we live in and the world that was and the world that will be. And we ask you, God, the one who's steady and constant, the anchor who holds all things together, that you would give us perspective, that you would give us vision, that you'd give us insight. That you would give us wisdom as we seek to navigate times of change in our world right now, in our lives, or in our individual situations. We pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would speak to each one of us here tonight according to your power and our need. And we thank you that we have this great privilege and expectation that you're going to hear our prayer and that you're going to move in our midst tonight. And so we invite you to do that now through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, there are certain words that are always going to be unsettling to Christians. I, I think to a true Christian, sometimes when you hear the word religion, it can be a little bit unsettling you know, because we understand that there's a difference between religion and relationship and we hear it and it grates on us just a little bit. There's other ones too. There's words like fasting. I think that, that word, sometimes it gets underneath our skin a little because we're like, eh, you, know, you know, I'm kind of joking with that. you know. But, but there's one word that almost always makes us unsettled as Christians, and that word is the word evolution. When we say that word, you almost say, well, that word just doesn't belong in church. And really the word has kind of been hijacked by the godless scientific community, and it's been made to mean something, really a system wherein God is absent. But that's stealing the definition. The word evolution, according to Webster's Dictionary, I'm going to read you the definition. It says, The process of change in a certain direction, especially a process of constant change from a lower or simple state to a higher or complex state. Growth. Definition B, the process of working out or developing. And what we need to understand is that though that word sometimes can seem to us to be sacrilegious, things do change within the kingdom of God from a lower, simple, to a higher, more complex state. There are things in the kingdom of God that develop. The world develops, governments develop, culture develops, economies develop, technology develops. And generations develop. Things change as the world goes on and as one generation folds into the next. Now, God doesn't change. God is the steady constant and he always remains the same. Now, every generation that comes onto the earth is born into a set of circumstances that shape and then ultimately define that generation. And those things set it apart from the generation that was before it. And so every generation interprets the world that they're born into, and then they operate in that world according to the environment they're born into. Now, today on the Earth, planet Earth, there are five, maybe six, generations that have been named by sociologists. Okay, there's the traditionalists, the baby boomers, Generation X, the Millennials, and then Generation Z, and then maybe there's another one now that hasn't quite come into its name yet, you know, the the youngest of those that are among us. And every one of those generations all inherited a different world than the generation before it. And it made them different. It made them distinct. And the funny thing is, is that it's very difficult, if not impossible, for one generation... To understand the one before it or the one that comes after it. It was George Orwell who said, every generation imagines itself to be both more intelligent than the one before it and wiser than the one who comes after it. And there's truth in that statement. That just keeps happening. If you think about the traditionalists, my father is really a traditionalist. I'm a Gen Xer. There was kind of like he was a little older by the time he had me, so I kind of skipped out on the boomers, and I was born into Generation X, but he's a traditionalist, and the traditionalists really like they were the children of the Great Depression. They were rule followers. They were savers. That was the example that was handed to them, the world that they interpreted, But then they gave birth to a new generation, the baby boomers, and they saw the tight suits that the traditionalists wore, and they inherited the rebuilt world that they were responsible for after the war. And the boomers questioned authority, and they were spenders. You know, they were great consumers. And so generations change. So every generation relates to things differently than the one before it. They relate to money differently, possession, style, color, music, food, and here it is, even God. Each generation relates to God a little differently than the one before. One generation will genuinely experience the presence of God in a whitewashed church building with a fancy steeple, in fancy clothes, with hardwood pews, a covered pulpit, And they want their message raw, dry, and a little edgy and angry. And they genuinely experience the presence of God in that. But then another generation will come and they'll genuinely experience the presence of God surrounded by their friends wearing hoodies in a coffee house with a guitar leaning against the wall. And they want their messages relatable and down to earth. And then another generation will come. And they'll genuinely experience the presence of God in chat rooms, debating theology and morality isolated by themselves, but they meet with God there and they fellowship with others in that environment. And then another generation will come and they experience the presence of God by reading and writing blogs and creating vlogs and posting and passing and commenting on things that they see on their phones and their computer screens. And church for them, they want it to be like a concert. They want it to reflect the technology of the day. They want the message and the preaching to be polished and prepared. That's what they want. That's how they experience the presence of God. And the tendency of each generation is to look at the one that's coming and to say, they don't know God the way that we knew God. And the truth is, they don't. They know the same God, but they don't know him the way that you know him. God knows them, though, because his throne, the Bible tells us, remains from generation to generation. And so God will do a new thing. He'll move in a slightly different way. He'll meet people where they are in the world that they inherited that he understands and that he authored. And that's really what the cross of Jesus Christ says, if you think about it. Um, It says a lot of things. But one of the things the cross says is that I will come to where you are and draw you to where I am. And that's what Jesus does. Now, the story of 1 Samuel, as we prepare to get into it, is the story of a new generation. It's a new beginning. It's God putting away a system that had become corrupt, that had become stale and useless, Breaking the mold of the past and moving his kingdom forward, advancing his cause. And God is going to renew a nation. Religiously, people are no longer connecting with God. And so God is going to renew the nation religiously. Societally, people are kind of wandering. They're floundering. They're sort of spinning in circles. They've lost their purpose. And so they're surviving, but they're not thriving. And so God is going to renew. He's going to revive society. And politically, those that were leading the people, they had become very self-interested and no longer society interested. And so God is going to flip it. He's going to renew it. He's going to revive it. There's going to be a change. And it's the story of that. It's also the story, for Samuel, of a human instrument, a prophet priest who will become the anchor of stability in the turbulence of transition. And transition can be a turbulent thing. And this man, Samuel, that we will meet, is going to inaugurate a new priesthood and a new government, and he's going to ordain and anoint the first two kings of Israel that will then go on to shape her future. Samuel will be a light to the nation in darkness, the umbilical cord for two of that nation's greatest kings. So... As we get into chapter one tonight and we look at this uh, text of scripture, we're going to see that the story begins long before the events take place in it. And so we're going to see tonight in these scriptures, we're going to see the man, the system, the woman, and the child. And so if you'll turn to verse one tonight, let's take a look at the man who started it all. It says in chapter one, verse one, it says that there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. "...of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Ziph, an Ephrathite." Okay, so the man that we first meet right here at the beginning is a man named Elkanah. Now, he's from Mount Ephraim, but he is genetically of the tribe of Levi, which means that he's a priest. Now, if you remember... When the land was divided by Joshua and each tribe had borders, there was one tribe that was not given a county or a section, and that was the Levites. They were to be dispersed throughout all of the other tribes so that the priesthood would be represented in every territory of Israel. And so Elkanah is one of those Levites, and he lives in the territory of Ephraim But he is a Levite. He's a priest. But he's a common man through whom great change would come unbeknownst to himself. Now, he lives in somewhat of a complex situation if you'll look at verse 2. It says that he had two wives. Do I need to go any further? It's a complicated situation. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay, so there are two things going on right now that make his life and his family life very complex. Number one is that the man is a, what do you call it, a bigamist or a polygamist? He's got more than one wife. And now you see that from time to time in the Old Testament. And what we know concerning polygamy in the Bible is that it is not scripted in the Bible, meaning God didn't say it's okay for you to take more than one wife, but neither is it expressly forbidden in the scripture. But we do know that it was not intended by God, that that's not the way that he made marriage to exist, and we also know that it's not right. To be a polygamist is unfair, it's unjust. It causes problems, It ruins lives. It makes messes. It's not a good thing. And so we understand that, that God does that. Now, that makes Elkanah's life complex, first of all, is that he's got more than one wife at home. The other thing is that there is a a wedge of competition that exists between those two wives. And that is that one of them is able to bear children and the other one is not which means that now you have two elements of competition between these two women that Elkanah's married to. Number one is they're both competing for his affection, and that can be intense enough. But now they're competing amongst each other that the one is able to give birth and the other one is not. And so on both sides, there's this competition that's there. There's this angst, this complication within the home. Now we'll see that unfold, but look at what happens in verse 3. We see Elkanah's worship. And it says, And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. We see Eli's, or I'm sorry, Elkanah's devotion to God. Now, what I love about what we see in verse three, and you can almost miss it and read over it, is that you see this man who can love God and who can be accepted by God even when shady things from his past are still present in his life. His home life isn't maybe what it's supposed to be. And there's some things that are going on behind the scenes that aren't perfect, but yet at the same time, he can still be a lover of God and God can receive his worship and God can honor what's gonna come from his life. And here's the good news for you and I as we understand this is that your kids can still change the world and alter the course of human history, even if everyone in the church is gossiping about how dysfunctional your marriage and your family is. That's good news. I wonder how many picture-perfect people God passed over when he was selecting a family that would give birth to a child that would change the world. And he chose to move upon a family that was dysfunctional, but they loved God. I love that one of the hallmark statements of Samuel's life later on will become, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And let that be an encouragement to some of you here tonight that you might think, well, my life is too dysfunctional. My home is too chaotic. God can't use me and he can't bless my offspring. That's false. God chose Elkanah and ultimately him and Hannah to bring forth the man Samuel. We also see in verse three, we're introduced to Eli and his two sons, Eli is the high priest at this time, and he serves with his two sons, their names given to us there, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, these two men, they represent the system, the religious system that is current at the time of the reading, all right? Now, Eli is a descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses and from whom came the high priesthood or the privilege of the high priesthood. Now, just as a bit of history so that you understand the transition that's going to take place, Aaron had four sons. Don't fall asleep on me here. I'll make it quick. All right? He had four sons, two of them, Nadab and Abihu. They were so corrupt that God took them out right in the middle of their life. That left two more. There was a man named Ithamar, and there was another one named Eliezer. And it was committed unto Ithamar, the son of Aaron, that it would be his descendants that would be over the tabernacle. They would serve within the place of worship. And Eli is a direct descendant of Ithamar. Now, again, the system that Eli watches over, that he's the head of, that system is corrupted and God is going to put an end to it. And you think, well, okay, if God's going to put an end to it, yet The priest still has to be a descendant of Aaron. Who's he gonna choose? Listen, the new priest is gonna come from Eliezer, the fourth son of Aaron. And just so you understand the history is that there's two possible lines. God's about to make a change. God's gonna change from the one to the other. The system is failing God. It's failing the people as we're gonna see and God's gonna do something about it. Well, notice in verse four, we meet the woman. We've seen the man, we've seen the system. In verse four, we meet the woman. And it says that when the time... Was that Elkanah offered? He gave to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. Okay, so Panina, she's popping out kids like a human pez machine. And Elkanah is providing for them at the time of the sacrifice, making sure that everyone has food, has provisions, that they're having a good time. He's looking after them. But then there's Hannah, and Hannah has no kids. And so in verse five, it says, Unto Hannah, He gave a worthy portion. Why? For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed up her womb. Okay, now in the New Testament, when you read the word worthy, it means equal. It doesn't mean the same exact thing in the Old Testament, but the idea behind it is that he gave so much to Penina and her sons, and he gave a whole lot more than that proportionally To Hannah because he favored her, because he loved her. And that was the way that he expressed and showed his love by giving to her abundantly above what he gave to his other wife. Now that's the third element of complication, by the way, that exists in a family dynamic like the one that we see here in the text, is that there's competition for his love, but yet there's the problem with Hannah is that she cannot have uh, children. You know, it's interesting. um, Well, look at verse 5. Oh, I did already. Okay. It, it, it's an interesting thing that we see uh, these days in the world that we live in. We hear this word a lot. You ready for it? It's equality. You guys know that word? Have you heard that word at all lately? <laughs> you know? It's the word equality. And here's what I, I, I need you to understand, that we need to understand, is that there's no such thing as equality. Equality is a myth. Equality doesn't exist. People are not all equal. And, and I know some, some of you are like, have you, you've been so like listening to just the news lately that he, even hearing me say that, you're like, oh my gosh, you're going to get shot saying, saying those words, you know. But really, it's just obvious. We don't all have equality. You see it right here in the text, okay? Hannah is loved more than Panina by her husband. That's not equal. He loves one more than the other we see that Penina has an ability that Hannah doesn't have. That's inequality. Penina's able to carry children. Hannah is not. They're not equal, okay? And and that's just a fact of the matter, is that every single one of us have things in our life that are different from other people, and they make us unequal. Some of us have gifts, talents, and abilities that other people don't have, Some people have strengths that other people, for them, it's a weakness. Some people have opportunities because of certain things in their life. They're born into money or they're born into a certain society or a certain family. And so they have opportunities because of that that other people don't have. Some people are going to get gold medals for running, and other people are not. No matter how hard they train or try, genetically, physically, it is impossible for them to ever be the fastest runners on earth. Here's what everyone has equally, is that God is good, and that God is just. And so what God does is, though we have inequalities, God gives us opportunities opportunity according to what we do have and thus all of us have the ability to make something of our life and to bring glory to God through our lives even though we can't do or be what someone else is okay now here's what's going on in the text is that Hannah and Panina are not equal okay and they both wanted something that the other person had Hannah wanted children, Penina wanted Elkanah, and they both couldn't get what the other one had. They were aware of it, and they were both unhappy. Both of them are frustrated. That's what's going on in the thing. Well, now let's enter, let's bring in the adversary, and let's see how this gets intensified. Notice in verse six, it says, Hannah's adversary, that is Penina, the other one, also provoked her sore for to make her fret. The word fret is unsettled. She was unsettled. Her peace left her. She was staying up at night. She couldn't sleep. She had problems uh, in her mental health because of what was going on. They made her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb, or closed her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. And so you see now, Elkanah, his wife Penina, is tormenting Hannah. She's calling all of her kids by name really loud right in front of Hannah. She's going, "Eh, I don't want to make up Hebrew names. It'll just be silly. You know, she's just shouting, spouting out the names. She's saying another one and another one and another one and another one. She's staring at Hannah like one of Cinderella's older sisters, you know, and just beating her into the ground with her words and provoking her, knowing how to push her buttons because she knows that she can't have kids. Now, listen, inequality has always been a foothold for the adversary. Isn't it interesting that she's called the adversary, her adversary, there in verse 6? Who is our adversary according to the Bible? Satan, that's right. And Satan knows how to exploit inequalities to make people discontent. That's what he's an expert at doing. He takes natural inequalities and then he exploits them to get people fighting with each other. And if you fret over something you don't have, then you are vulnerable to being preyed upon and played upon by the enemy. And what will happen to you is what happened to Hannah. Notice what happens to Hannah at the end of verse seven. It says, therefore she wept And did not eat. Now watch this. Because Hannah had something. She had a double portion. Hannah had double twice as much of what her adversary had. But she was so focused on what she didn't have that she could not enjoy what she did have. And that is a very real risk that all of us could easily fall into. Sometimes our eyes get so firmly fixed upon what we don't have that it becomes impossible for us to see what we do. The things that we want or are waiting for get so close to our vision that they eclipse everything else good that we have going on in our life and we fail to enjoy it. But here's the problem, is that sometimes the joy of a blessing that we have in our life right now is only a seasonal joy. In other words, we're going to miss out on something because we're not enjoying what's in our life right now because we're waiting for something that's to come. I remember in in my life when I got saved, I was 19 years old, and it was very shortly after I got saved that God uh, put a calling on my life to be a pastor, and I was aware of that. I knew it. He had given me some words. He'd given me some gifts and some opportunities. He began opening some doors. And and I knew that that's what God was doing in my life. And And I was excited about it. You know sometimes you hear you know preachers say you know that they they you know they didn't want to be called and God made them do it you know or whatever you know but I was excited I loved the word I loved I loved the things I was learning and and sharing it and seeing people changed by it you know so I was excited about that and I couldn't wait for it I was like God you're going to use me God you you called me God you have something for me it was, it was so good But here's what happened is that part of the preparation for me to ultimately end up in the place where God was leading me or would lead me, he had 15 years scheduled for me to learn a trade. And so for 15 years, every day I put a tool belt on and a hard hat and steel toe boots, and I thought, God, when is it, when is it, when is it, when is it, when is it? it?" And for 15 years, I fretted over what was coming that wasn't here yet, And in the process, I missed out on so many things that God was doing and blessing me with right in the season that I was in. And it's a regret that I carry to this day because now I look back at those days and I didn't realize what I had then that I no longer have now that I forgot to enjoy because I was too busy worried about what wasn't here yet. Anybody ever have that happen to them? You can be so worried about having money that you can forget to enjoy your youth. And when the money finally comes, you say, why does everything hurt? I forgot to enjoy the days when I could just get up and go. You can be so worried about when am I gonna have kids that you can forget to enjoy sleep and what that feels like to be rested, you know. You can be so annoyed with having your spouse chase you around the kitchen that you can lose the joy or forget to enjoy having one. And the next thing you know, that thing that you had that maybe was a thorn in your side at the time, you realize once it slipped away that that thing was actually a real blessing that I wasn't recognizing because I couldn't wait to get to what wasn't here yet. There's so many people. I, I, I preached a message here on, I think it was December 27th. It was the very end of last year. It was called 2020 Vision for 2020. And what inspired that message was the number of people that said to me, I can't wait to get out of 2019. (laughs) I wonder how many of those same people today are saying, I wish it was 2019 again. I forgot to enjoy... What I had in 2019 that I haven't had at all in 2020. Listen, let it be a warning to you. Don't say, I can't wait to get out of 2020. Okay, enjoy what you've got right now because it's probably not going to get better. Things are going to change. Okay, so if you get your eyes on what you don't have, you fail to see the things that you do. Now watch this, verse 8, here comes the well-meaning fixer. You guys know this guy, watch. Then Elkanah said to her husband, or then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why, why eatest thou not? And why is your heart grieved? Am not I better to you than ten sons? What do you have to be sad about? Perk up, chin up, come on, look at all that you've got. You've got me. You don't need what you don't have, you know, don't you love this guy? Now, here's what we're going to discover, is that God is in every one of these dynamics, in all of this entire situation, in order to bring Hannah to the place where her heart, mind, and will is in line and in tune with God's plan and God's will to fulfill and bring forth his purpose. So watch what Hannah does in verse 9. It says, so Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now, Eli, the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Okay, so Hannah finally gets up. All right, and she goes out of the room and she just begins to break down. She cracks, she has a moment and she just breaks and watch what she does in verse 11. It says that she vowed a vow and she said in the presence of the Lord, she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget your handmaid, but will give unto your handmaid a manchild then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, I love what it says back over in verse nine because if you look at the, look again what it says in verse nine, it says this, it says, so Hannah rose up. Do you see those words? Hannah rose up. And there's something in that and here's what it is, is that Hannah finally came to the point Where she had exhausted all of her own energy, all of her own ability, and all hope that would come from another human being to change her situation. Hannah, rising up here, represents her abandonment of trying to fix her own problems. And what she finally does now is in the moment of her greatest pain, listen carefully, she is reduced to prayer. In other words, there's nothing else that I can do. There's nothing that no one, that anybody else can do. So I guess I'll pray. That's what she finally comes to in her life. It's a miraculous moment when someone is reduced to prayer. When finally they come to the place where they will believe to go to God for the thing that no one else can do and that they can't do themselves, and that's what God did for her. You know, it's interesting that she prays this prayer, and it's, it's about a breath. You can literally pray, read this verse without having to breathe in between. It's one sentence. There's just commas. There's no period. You can pray this prayer in about 10 seconds, she does. It's interesting, at the end of it, she adds on this little thing. She says, please give me a man, child, and then she says this, and it's important. She says, no razor will come upon his head. Now, the implication behind that is that he would be a Nazarite by vow, meaning that he would be consecrated and dedicated to God. And the highest mark or the most recognizable mark of the Nazarite was that they didn't ever get a haircut. That's what happened to Samson. And Samson was probably alive at this time. If you look at the dates... The, they're the same. The time that Hannah prayed this prayer and that Samson was being brought up and used of God, they, they are contemporaries. And so she knows what this means. And essentially what she is saying to God is this. She said, God, if you give me a child, then I will dedicate that child to you and I will refrain from trying to shape his destiny. He will be completely yours. See, that's the haircut, right? We, we, we express ourselves through our do. You know, in the days that we can. And she's saying, essentially, she's saying, God, this child will belong to you, and I will be as hands off as I can, and I will allow you to shape him into the man that he's supposed to be. Do you know that when we dedicate our kids, we're basing it off of this very episode in the Bible right now, when we do baby dedications in church? And really, that's the spirit behind it is that we want to say to God, God, I'm dedicating this child to you, and I will lead them and tend them in your ways. But my role is not to mold them, but rather it's to unfold what you have placed inside of them. And that's the posture of Hannah's prayer. She's saying, I'm not asking for a child so that I can make him what I want him to be, but God, I want a child so that he can be what you want to create him to be. And that's exactly what God was intending by bringing Hannah to this pain point of prayer to ask for the son. See, Hannah wanted a son, but God wanted a prophet. And so he brought Hannah to the place where her will was in tune and in line with his. No razor will come upon his head. Now, in verse 10, through all the way through the middle of chapter 2, we see the outgrowth of the seed that is sown by this prayer, this one simple prayer. Verses 1 through 8 is the preparation of the ground, God getting her ready. This is chapter what we just read, God getting her ready to pray this prayer. Then chapter, or verses 9 through 11 is the sowing of the seed. And now everything from verse 12 all the way to chapter 2, verse 11 is the power of God in response to a single prayer. Watch what happens. It says, verse 12, that it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. In other words, Eli the high priest, he's sitting against the post in the corner. He's watching this woman who's coming in weeping. He sees her mouth moving. It says that Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said unto her, how long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. Don't you love being judged by people that have no idea what's going on in your life? And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not your handmaid for a daughter of Belial, a daughter of Satan. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat. Now watch this. And her countenance was no more sad. You know, it's an amazing thing when someone is reduced to prayer, the immediate effect that it has in their life. Even before the answer comes, there's a switch, there's a flip that happens inside, and a person has the inner witness of the Spirit of God within them that they've been heard and that God is on it. You know how important surrender is? To surrender, to say, God, my hands are off. I'm done trying to fix this. I'm done trying to manipulate you and other people. I'm done with my own devices. God, I trust you. And when a person opens their hand in surrender, there's an immediate change on the inside, even if the change on the outside hasn't happened yet. It says that they rose up early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord in return and came to the house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That means that they had marital relations. And the Lord remembered her. Wherefore, it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel means asked of God. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and then abide there forever. In other words, I'm going to keep him here until he's done being weaned, until we we get some early education into him. And then when I bring him to the temple for the first time, that will be where he stays. That will be his lodging. He will be purely dedicated to God, even in presence. What an amazing sacrifice. Can you imagine? I mean, for for those of you dads, you're like, yeah, that's great. Kids and no noise. (laughs) You know, but the moms... Like, you, you feel this. You know, Hannah is saying, I'm going to have the child that I've been waiting for my whole life, and he's going to be so dedicated to God that I'm going to let him be raised up outside of my care and tutelage. That's an amazing trust, faith, and sacrifice. So Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, do what seems good, tarry until you have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine, and she brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. And so essentially you could look at it that she brought the money that it would cost, the provisions that it would take in order to keep him there fed, that she wasn't putting the burden on someone else. And they slew a bullock and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, I love this, don't you love being able to testify and give God glory for the things, the prayers that he's answered in your life? And she said, oh my Lord, as thy soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by you here praying unto the Lord. Remember the drunken one, the daughter of Satan? For this child I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he shall be lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. That became Samuel's place, his lifestyle and his home. Now watch Hannah's response in verse uh, chapter 2 verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. She gives glory to God for the answering of her prayer and she accredits her joy to her thanksgiving. She says, I have joy because I rejoice in your salvation. She says to God, there is none holy as the Lord for there is none beside you, neither is there any rock like our God. Isn't it an amazing thing to be able to say that, go from a place of wonder and doubt to the place of victory and to have received your promise and then to be able to look at God and declare his faithfulness. She says, then talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. And God is a God of change. Watch verse four. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full, the bankers, the rich men, the oppressors, the adversaries, they that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased. They were no longer hungry. So that the barren has born seven, and he that hath many, or she that hath many children is waxed feeble. God is the God who changes things. God is the God who takes those that are proud and oppressive, and he humbles them, and he takes the weak and the lowly, and he raises them up. He takes those that are full, and he empties them out, and he takes those that are empty, and he fills them up. He changes things. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings an end to certain systems and then bring birth to new ones. He brings down to the grave and then he bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. God is sovereign in the kingdom and the realms of men, not man. God ordains what will be, not man. He's the one that has the power to hold the pillars. He will keep the feet of his saints. What an amazing promise in changing times. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Watch this. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Isn't it amazing the insight that she has? There is no king at this point, but she can see what God is doing through the circumstances of her present time. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house. And the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. And so Samuel is birthed. Samuel is then left with Eli, and he is raised in the things of God. What we see in these verses is we see the outgrowth of the seed that was sown when Hannah prayed when she was hurting in her heart. And all of that testimony that's given. Isn't it, isn't it an interesting thing to, to realize right here that in the beginning, Of our our time. When we looked at the beginning of chapter 1, things were mundane. There was confusion. There was oppression. There was anxiety. There was uncertainty. And by the time we get to the end of the episode, at the end of the passage, there's rejoicing. There's testimony. There's hope. There's perspective and vision. And do you know what made the difference between those two things? Prayer. One breath of prayer became the great game-changer In the whole situation. See, God had big plans. And God wanted to change big things. But it started with individuals in small places. Isn't it amazing the amount of pain that it took Hannah, for Hannah, to reduce her to the place where she would just simply pray? How much pain does it take to get a person to just trust God and pray? You know what's even more amazing than that? Is that that one seed, it's one breath of prayer to God offered sincerely. One breath of prayer to God. That seed, one small seed, Do you know what it produced? It produced six books of the Bible. It produced a long line of kings that ultimately led to the coming of Christ the Messiah. One seed, one breath of prayer moved Hannah, who would have no other way. It moved Elkanah, who had no business in the kingly line, no attachment to Jesus, and moved them into the, the place where they became pivotal in seeing that happen. Just one breath of prayer. There are times when the season of sowing seeds is past. See, for Hannah, for Hannah, she was reduced to prayer by the pain that she was in. God brought her there, the, the, the thing was so oppressive, it weighed on her so heavily that she sowed that seed. And that's something that all of us can do all the time. We can pray. But do you realize that there are seasons for sowing seed, and then there's times when that season passes and you can no longer sow? For instance, once your kids are grown and gone, it's too late to sow the seed of their future in prayer to God in, in, in cultivating his ways. It's not too late to pray for them and that God would get a hold of their life, and he will and does. But there's a season for sowing seed. But what does it take for us to come to the place where we'll trust God enough to just do it? Right now, in the United States of America, things are changing. Do you realize that? (laughs) I hope so. I hope you realize that things are happening in our country right now. The United States of America is spiritually, morally, and economically bankrupt. We are in a bad situation. Place. Literally, the country's on hospice. I, I had a dream last night, and you know, I'm not a, I, this doesn't happen to me all the time, but we had prayer at our house last night, prayer initiative, and we we're praying. And, and last night I had a dream, and it was one of those dreams that's extremely vivid, but very chaotic. You know how, like, you're in one place and then you're in another place, and you don't know how you got from one to the other, but it made sense then, you know? But there was one factor that existed throughout every scene of my dream and that was this is that President Trump was in hospice and for some reason I was in a place where I reported directly to him and so I knew it but no one else did and so everywhere I went I had to keep this secret that the president was in hospice that he was about to die and I couldn't tell anybody else but he was in hospice there was no more hope for him at all and so I wake up from this dream and I tell my wife, I said, I just had crazy dreams last night, but they didn't make any sense. Everything was just weird. I was in Buffalo and then, you know, in all these different places. And, 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 but I said, this was the one thing. And so I got up and, and I thought about it for a second. I just said, Lord, what is that? And it was that quick. The Lord said, the President of the United States represents the United States. And right now, the United States of America is in hospice. That's where we are as a country. And what's happened to the citizens of our country, including the church, the Christians in our country, is that we have a morphine mindset. Meaning that because the Federal Reserve keeps putting money in the system and keeping things looking like normal as long as they can, we just go, well, everything's just going to come back. Everything's just going to turn around. Do you realize that a million new people per week are filing unemployment insurance? a million people every week. And eventually what happens is that the system begins to collapse upon itself. Because I don't know if you've experienced it, but I have, but you go to the store to get something and you can't get it. You try to get a part and you can't get it. You try to get a tool and you can't get it. And you find out it's because the tool manufacturer can't get a part to make the tool that he needs to make. And eventually what happens is that enough jobs disappear that the supply lines break and we can't get what we want or need and the system collapses upon itself. And we're in the middle of that happening, but we're still comfortable. And so we're not sowing the seed that's necessary in this season right now because we're thinking that things are just going to come right out. You know what's going to happen is that the country is going to flatline. And then what? So here's my point tonight, which you need to understand and hear is that we are in a season where things are changing. But you need to know this, is that that change can be navigated and the outcome can be determined by corrupt men or by a holy God. And that the power of prayer that exists within us to bring God into a situation that's otherwise fatal is ours alone. And yet we, The church are asleep. And we haven't been reduced to prayer. The pain of the situation is keeping us complacent. Now is the time to call upon God. Now is the time to pray. Now is the time to reach our hands upwards. The answer for the world that we live in today is not politics. It's not protests. It's not picketing. It's not posting. It's prayer. It's prayer. It's saying, God, we can't fix this. I can't fix this. Politics, Washington can't fix this. Trump can't fix this. Conservatives can't fix this. God can fix this. Things are going to change. Who's going to be the one who navigates that change? We have the power to bring God into the situation. Will we do it? Will we do it, the system is stale. Religiously, we've become corrupt. It's mundane. It's going through the motions. Some of it's fake. Societally, people are wandering. It's all about a paycheck now. There's no purpose in anything that anybody does anymore. We just do what we can to make more money, but we take no pride in what we do. We're wandering. Politically, things are so corrupt It's so disgusting, and God, God is the one that flips it. One generation comes, and then they go, and another generation comes, but God, he holds up all things forever. We are going to hand off a world to another generation, should he tarry. What kind of world will it look like? It's on us right now. The power is in prayer. That's where it begins. One person, Hannah insignificant, unknown otherwise. One breath of prayer changed the world. Will you pray? Father, we come tonight and we thank you, Lord, for for, for helping us to understand, for helping us to see who you are, and helping us to see how your sovereignty works in tandem with our prayer to bring change in the world. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you would give to us a Spirit of grace and supplication that would seize the opportunity that we have on this side of the chaos that would come. And in this season where seed can be sown, that you would give us the wisdom, the faith, the courage, and the energy to call on you with passion and zeal. Lord, we need you now more than ever as individuals, as families, in our marriages, as parents in society, both locally, nationally, and worldwide. And we're calling upon you, Lord, as your church, as those that have been called by your name, and we're asking you, God, would you please, would you please pour out your spirit again upon a world that's lost? Would you please raise up Samuels and Daniels and Pauls and Peters and Hannahs and Esthers and Marys? And John, would you pour out your spirit upon a generation of our youth that don't know their right hand from their left? And would you get their attention from a young age? And would you give us the wisdom to look beyond ourselves and to see, Lord, that it's only what's done for you and for eternity really matters at all. So help us, Lord, to be the church that you've called us to be. And to make a difference in the way that we can, though it seems small, it turns into something very great. Give us wisdom, Father, for we need it from you. You know, there's one more seed that is impossible to sow once it's too late, and that is this. Is that one minute after the rapture, it's too late to sow the seed of repentance and salvation. There will come a moment when God will wrap it up, when he'll blow the trumpet and he'll call his people home, and God will declare World War III on a Christ-rejecting world. And there'll be many people that have heard, that have known, maybe that tasted but never really committed. And that moment will happen, and it will be too late at that moment for you to say, God, I'm sorry. I acknowledge and receive what Christ did for me on the cross. I repent of my sins and invite you to be the Lord of my life that I might be included in your family. But that is a seed that you can sow right now. Because in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, God made a way for every sin to be forgiven and for us to be called his sons and daughters by grace, by simply calling on his name in repentance and faith. And if you're here tonight within the sound of my voice and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you may be five years old in this room here tonight or you might be 85 years old and you have yet to call on Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you right now to open up your heart to Jesus and pray this simple prayer with me of inviting him to forgive your sins and to come inside your life. And God will hear your prayer like he heard Hannah's. And the course of your life will change because of it. Ultimately, you'll be saved. You'll have eternal life. So I'm just going to ask all of you, just pray this prayer with me. But if you're here and you've never opened your heart to Jesus, you especially, pray this prayer. Open your heart to Jesus tonight. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I open my heart to you. I believe who you are. I believe your son, Jesus. I believe that you died for my sins but that you rose again from the dead and I ask you to forgive me of the things I've done wrong would you please save me I ask that you would wash me in the blood that you would come and live inside my heart that you would change me from the inside And that I might be yours forever. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer tonight, please let somebody know, whether the person you came with or come and tell me, I'll be hanging around here. Because you just made the best decision, the safest decision. Probably you'll find the timeliest decision that you could ever make in your life. Let's rise, let's worship. And let's go in his power. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.